Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Enjoying Black Tech Green Money? It will mean a lot if you rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. The way the algorithm works, the more you rate and say nice things, they'll introduce Black Tech Green Money to more people. And more of us need this content. So thank you for rating this podcast five stars today. Afrotech 2018, San Francisco, California. Monique Woodard is a venture capitalist, founder, and managing partner at Cake Ventures. She was previously a venture partner at 500 Startups and co-founded Black Founders, a San Francisco-based organization dedicated to entrepreneurship and inclusion. She's in the Influencers Lounge talking with the Afrotech team about what it takes to successfully raise a seed round from investors. So my three pieces of advice for raising a good seed round are one, know your metrics. Um, by the time you're ready to raise a seed round, you should have some data points about how your business is growing. So know your LTV, know your CAC, know your revenue, know what MRR is and ARR. And if it's not MRR or ARR, maybe it's GMV that you need to be talking about. So understand to the nth degree exactly what kind of metrics you need to be talking about to express, um, to express and convey your business well. Number two, I would say meet as many people as possible and understand the terms that you're raising on. Um, a lot of people, this will be your first time raising money, especially on a convertible note. So understand what those terms are in the convertible note, what kind of discount you're, you're trying to offer, what your cap is, and understand what those things are and what they mean for the next round of fundraising. And finally, I would say meet as many people as you can and um, have people help you. Reach out to you know, your network, reach out to people who you've worked with before, people who you went to university with, 
people at your church, tell them what you're doing, and have them introduce you to people who might want to invest. Um, at the seed round, a lot of people um, aren't necessarily institutional investors or aren't necessarily you know, venture funds. You will have some angels in those rounds, so really lean in on people that you know who could write you, write you a check. I'm Will Lucas, and this is Black Tech, Green Money. I'm going to introduce you to some of the biggest names, some of the brightest minds, and brilliant ideas. If you're black in building or simply using tech to secure your bag, this podcast is for you. Isaac Hayes III, also known as Ike Dirty, is an American record producer, voice actor, and founder of Fanbase, a subscription-based social network that is helping users monetize their content. He's the son of American music icon Isaac Hayes, who wrote the theme song from Shaft in the classic song Walk On By. Ike Dirty manages his father's estate. I asked Isaac about how being so close to the music industry as a child exposed him to the unlevel playing field artists were on versus the record labels that provided the contracts and what he might have learned about the power of ownership of your creative intellectual property. My dad was really treated unfairly, so... Um, figuring out, you know, the pathway to understanding how to own your publishing or your masters or your content um, was definitely something that was just instilled in me from an early age. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I had to know that moving forward is really how the foundation of my education in the music industry. Um, so that's really what shaped my mindset, even more of a businessman than even a musician. Mm. So, I mean, too many of us don't think of songs as like intellectual property, you know, or I mean, as a byproduct, you know, don't consider their ability to hold court on platforms like Clubhouse, you know, or, or their right. dances on TikTok as IP. And um, what has been most compelling or enlightening in your case, you know, what's been most effective um, in your experience in helping people realize that they're contribution to social media in a lot of ways has value. I think the music industry was a really good example. Back around 2010, 2012, um, I like to call that like the mixtape era, like the Dat Piff live mixtapes era. Everybody was dropping mixtapes. Travis Porter was popping, Roscoe Dash. You know, it was the, the way that you got on as an artist, right? But in that process, people used to put out so much free music and not get paid for it. It'd be albums and albums of songs and then maybe one record that hit, but you've got 12 records that other producers did, other songwriters wrote that you've given away for free. And all that IP, you know, went to waste, basically, you know, unless the, the, the artist blew up and they picked up those songs in some way, shape or form. So when, you know, Spotify kind of picked up and then Apple Music came on the scene, um, people were able to monetize that content. They were able to take those mixtapes now and put them on Spotify and Apple Music and no longer the free mixtape game, it kind of stopped at that point, right? So uh, in building a, a technology platform, it really helped me understand that that's kind of where we are right now with content, that there's so many amazing content creators that do dances, that do skits and comedy and all these great things, exercises and fashion and all this kind of stuff. And we're giving this content away for free and nobody's really making any money except the platforms that run ads through all of us. So I think, you know, comparing where the mixtape game was in the music industry, I'm comparing that to kind of where we are with content creators now in 2020, 2021. Yeah, yeah. And you, and you spoke about your music career, like, and being a music producer, you know, people may know you from one of your biggest hits, the little scrappy, um, the money in the bank. 
um, but you do have more. And what was that moment you realized that there's potentially like a bigger opportunity here behind the screen in tech, you know, versus like behind the boards in music? I think when I saw a problem that needed to be solved, I mean, I, I'd been managing my father's estate um, and still do, but at the time that I came up with um, the concept for fan base, it was just a, a moment where a young creative was caught like a deer in the headlights that didn't know how to monetize his content, who caught a viral moment, right? And this was probably 2018. And it really made me think there needs to be a way for creatives to instantly monetize their content by way of subscription, but not so to the point that everybody feels like you have to pay. And I feel like there is no, before fan base, there really was no in between. It was either free on Instagram or it was Patreon or OnlyFans, but there was not a happy medium where you can have followers and subscribers at the same time. And so I wanted to provide that, that, oh, the people that you rock with your friends and your family and everybody you engage with is cool, but you can still make content for people that want to support you. So um, that's the that's the moment that I realized, you know, that we need to find a space for creatives to be able to monetize their content, but not make it so cumbersome with paywalls. Yeah, so let's say I am sold on my creative outlet being a value, you know, how and how then do I convert those people who just like you know, giggling because I I'm, I can be silly or, you know, entertained by my dance. How do I convert? How do I know that people actually want to pay for what I'm doing? Well, because people are paying. And I think that's the that's the thing that I think people really need to realize is we get caught in these funnels of our own like ecosystems and understand that for every Instagram, there is there are other platforms and sites where people are making content and charging people and people are paying and they're enormously successful people on those platforms. I think we get so used to giving away our content for free and the value prop is fame that we don't understand that there's a world out there of people making money. Like, and, and, and I hate to use OnlyFans as an example, but <laughs> um, the fact that the women that use that platform and the sex workers that use that platform, they are so consistent in their marketing strategy. They're co They're so consistent in their link in bio and swipe up. That's it right. really, it's not a simple, just because you can monetize your content doesn't mean, okay, I charge people and then that's it. There's, there's a, there's work and effort that goes into it. So you still have to become your own marketer. You still have to become your best marketer to really promote your content. What I tell people is use your, your biggest platforms to start to drive that audience, that 5%, I tell people 5% of your audience is really what you're really looking for. The 5% of people that follow you that will subscribe to you. So if you have a million followers, right, on a social media platform, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, whatever, Twitter, you can convert 5% of those people to paying subscribers, right? And it's between two and eight, but I just mm -hmm. sell around five, right? And, and for 50,000 people on our platform, um, is almost like 1.1, $1.2 million a year. That's a lot of money. Wow. That's, that's a millionaire. You a millionaire just off converting that percentage of uh, people that really like your content. So that's what I tell people to do. Start driving people to these platforms because, and I don't want to get long winded, but I tell people you have to date apps, right? If you're in a relationship with an app and the app isn't providing you the relationship that you want, right? It's okay to date a Snapchat or a yeah. TikTok yeah. or a Twitch, because what happens is DJ Khaled found a relationship with Snapchat that he didn't have on Instagram. 
that became that's where he blew up, right? Jason Derulo has found a relationship on TikTok that he didn't have on Instagram or YouTube or Snapchat. And now he's blown up. So every platform will find that. Fan base will find that person that says, This is this is it. This is the relationship that I've been looking for. And they will be the largest star on the platform and make the most money and become the anchor to whatever growth that we do have. And so it's just, you have to date apps, just figure out your space and your place. Yeah. I want to dig in on that 5%. I mean, I'm really curious about that because, you know, you make me think about, there are people who like follow me and there are people who like are there, like they're here for me. Right. And the people who are really into what I'm doing. Um, And when you talk about that 5%, I think the part that we get discouraged about is when the, 15,000 people who follow me don't convert. Right. And you're saying, no, they, 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 they're not supposed to, it's supposed to be a, a, a subset of that is the ones that are actually there because they love Isaac Hayes or they love Will Lucas. Right. And that, that, that small percentage is the base that you build on. If I have, and, and, and I think about most people, even that we're in the, in this pandemic, right. Even if you have enough subscribers, right. To your content, that pay your car note, right? That you're making $500 a month, yeah. right? $350, $200. It's meaningful. More money than Instagram is paying you now, right? <laughs> more money. Yeah. It is. I, like one of the first, one of the first, um, I, not a proof of concept, but a light bulb moment that I did have, somebody used the platform and I told them, I said, hey, you made $6. This is like when we first, this is like even in beta, like this is the beta. But I somebody up to know and say, hey, you made six dollars this month on fan base, right? Just by the small group of people that were on there. And the first thing they said was, well, it's more than Instagram pays me. And I was like, <laughs> exactly. That was it. It's like I'm doing the same thing over here that I'm doing on sites for free. And they got lunch. And, and I get right. And I made some money. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements along with funding programs like Project Ready, a national urban league program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots, being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the One Million Black Businesses Initiative. The One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. 
They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. So I'm so what do you attribute like this movement of ownership to? Because I remember probably my first brush with, you know, like you can own your creative asset from the artist side was like Prince. Like Prince was, you know, on stage saying, like, look, y'all gotta get out the slave ship. And people in the audience, if you remember those those clips, they were they were paying attention, but they really wasn't on what he was trying to say. Yeah. And especially like the label people. I remember seeing Russell Simmons face on the screen when, when he did that and he was like, yeah, whatever. But, you know, Hove is talking about it. Jay-Z is talking about it. Uh, Steve Styles talking about it. Like, what do you attribute this to? Is it just because we have the Internet now that this is available to us? Or, like, wh- where is this movement coming from? I think we have a real metric to understand the, the value of Black culture. Like, what Black culture converts to in dollars, right? What Black, black culture converts to when this TikToker does this song and how much it makes that record sell. When this, you know, uh, musician or artist wears this jacket or this t-shirt, how much it sells. When when this person uses that slang on Twitter, how much it creates engagement. Therefore, the, the company can run ads through all that engagement by what they said. Or most recently, the users that got on Clubhouse and took this platform bombarded it with all of our content and our conversation and they just raised a hundred million dollars at a billion dollar valuation so now we see like okay we make shit i don't know use our word but we make things hot we blow stuff up yeah so to understand that black culture is actually like our vibranium our asset like we are so creative that um now like we shouldn't just be getting it away for free we shouldn't just be throwing our dances on TikTok or our, our slang on Twitter or, or our content over Instagram without some sort of monetary gain. So for me, that's what sparked my mind because I've seen it myself. I saw I saw Clubhouse go from when I got there it was like four to six thousand users yeah. to two users now and it was in beta and that was in August. And I saw the black community come on there and how the platform exploded, right? And now they can go out there and raise that money off all the conversations and engagement that we're bringing to the platform. That's right. Do we own it, right? Did anybody really get in? Other than the other than the connected African American community that knows these VCs, do the average people that get on this platform and blow it up, or even some of our culture, our younger culture rappers, the, the Meek Mills and the yeah. Twenty One Savage, 
are they really reaching out saying, hey, look, man, we're about to give y'all a piece of the platform. Like, we want you here. Or are they just saying, y'all do your thing and we'll go get this bag? No, I, I, I love... So you, you touched on so many things there that we're going to dig into. And number one, I want to talk about this black culture drives all culture. You know, I remember... Um, the first person who I heard say it in that way was Tristan Walker, um, founder of Walker & Co., maker of Bevel and et cetera. And he said, you know, black culture runs all global culture. And, you know, you think about food, black culture runs that. If you think about dance, we run that. Music, sports, we run all of that. And so do you, it seems like we're the only ones not sold on the value of it. You know why? Because we're innovators, right? We're like the We're like the people that pick up the Rubik's Cube and solve it and then put it down and say, what's the next thing, right? Oh, jazz, cool. Hip hop, cool. Break dancing, cool. Like whatever it is, we just, we just want to flip stuff, right? But what happens is we set these things down and then other people come by and pick them up and say, well, wait a minute, we can monetize this country music or this rock and roll or this hip hop or this DJing, this DJing thing, or we could take this global. Like, you know, we monetize, we don't understand, wait, wait, maybe, maybe we should make turntable companies. You know, like imagine when hip hop started, if the first thing somebody black did is built a turntable company rather than Techniques 1200, we would own an infrastructure, right? So um, that's kind of like what happened is like, we're, we're such at the apex of innovation, I say like, and especially African-American people. I know people of color around the world, but I always say that that African-American culture is the smallest cultural group on earth. It's like, it's like a generation one culture. We brand new, we just got here like what, 400 years ago maybe? Right. And civilizations have been around for thousands and thousands of years, but we're the most influential. So we're the smallest, youngest culture group on planet Earth. We're the most influential. And so we don't recognize that. Right. There is no African-America outside of America. Right. There's a Jamaica to go back to. Right. So Jamaicans can come here. Germans can come here. Japanese people can come here. Russians because they have a source to come so they can contribute as much to the American dream as they want to. But we are in America. So we have to be mindful about giving all of our sauce to this big pool, because if we don't own it, then we're just giving away our own goal. We're giving away our, our you know, our country, our, our, our asset, our, our legacy, our heritage. So we just gotta be mindful about that. Yeah, so what, what has to happen so that we do find ways to, or that we see the value in order to find, to, to build the fan bases of the world, that more of us are building these things? Because you talked about, yeah, we, you know, own it from the get, then we put it down, somebody else sees the value. What has to happen for us to see the value too? Well, I mean, hopefully, and I'm I'm very optimistic about the, the fashion in which Fanbase was built and the way that I even raised money for the platform. The cool thing about Fanbase is it's an equity funded platform by the community, right? So we have over 4,000 investors. I've managed to raise over $2.7 million. So you have people that actually own part of a platform that they can blow up, right? And the reason why I think about that, I've been thinking about the exits and valuations of these other companies in this in the tech space where you have Instagram for a billion, WhatsApp for 14, LinkedIn for 24, TikTok for 50 billion. Company started in 2016, sold for 50 billion. So if these if these companies exit 50, 60, 70 billion, right, billion dollars, right, or, or IPO and 60, 70 billion dollars, then I've created a, a multi, multiple millionaires, right? We have to own the infrastructures just as much as we own the content and the culture. It's about owning the infrastructure. So my my goal and my desire for fan base is to own the platform, 
along with the community that we raise money with and other people that bring their talent to the platform because that's the win because then we create other millionaires that can go in and, and fund other companies and, and invest in other things. We have to have really big wins on the board. It's cool to it's cool to invest in stocks. It's cool to invest in some of these things, but to really be able to exit a company and say, oh man, I exited and made 30 million off this company as a black person, right? I exited and made 200 million. I exited and made, you know, somebody that just said, I put $500 in and now my investment is worth $2.5 million. That's game changing. That's never been done before. So I think we have to really be intentional about saying, you know what? We could use Clubhouse, but Fanbase just had, they just, they just started direct voice, right? They just have drop-in audio chat, just like Clubhouse. Let's just all move over there because where we go, everybody else is going to follow us where we go. They're going to know what the hell we're talking about. What are you guys doing? What's going on? So, I mean, that's the point is if, if our community gets intentional about patronizing the infrastructures that we have, um, then then we we can build anything. If, if everybody says, you know what, I'm not going to eat any more fast food. I'm just going to eat Slutty Vegan, right? Yeah, Slutty yeah. Vegan will be the biggest, the biggest fast food chain in the world if we are intentional about that. So I think if we're more intentional, we'll, we will have those big wins in, in that space where we own the infrastructure that makes so much money. And so let's talk about that. How, how big can a black startup get? Because would we really have flocked to Clubhouse if it were built by black founders? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, here's the thing. I think, and I, I Clubhouse was an experiment for me. Uh, I got in the space and realized that there weren't a lot of, the black people that were there were not necessarily, I feel like people that were of the culture. They were people that were connected. So they weren't the ones that were ready to kick open the door and let the streets in. It definitely, it definitely wasn't those type of people. I got on there and saw friends of mine that I knew had huge connected relationships with tech and DC and white investors and white businessmen. And I'm like, why haven't they invited you on here? I'm on here. You know, <laughs> you know X, Y, Z. They're worth 30 million, 40 million. They haven't, they haven't seen you an invite to this? I said, oh man, I'm about to bite the hood on here. So I took I took my invites to Clubhouse and literally invited like ARs. I invited Jermaine Dupree and Van Lathan and and um Kenny Hamilton and Brian Michael Cox and Tricky Stewart and Dina Marto and Sean Garrett. And yeah. I just started inviting. So and I knew when I did that, I said, those people, they're going to bring the culture. And then what happened was everybody got on Clubhouse and started complaining, like, here we go, blowing up another app again. But in my mind, I knew I was going to raise money for fan base. So I said, I couldn't say that I was raising money because you can't talk about your raise before you do it. But as soon as the, my raise was live, I went on Clubhouse and said, remember, y'all talking about y'all wanted to invest in a black startup? Here, here it is. <laughs> and that first 20, maybe $30,000 worth of investment came off of Clubhouse. It jump started my raise. And so I definitely take a little bit of the credit for why the black community is so heavy on that platform. Cause I saw the invites that I gave, how other people gave their invites to those people. And those people gave their invites to those people who ended up inviting the meat meals and the, I saw the chant. I said, like, ah, so that's how you do it. So then you blow it up. So I saw that happen. and subscriber-only content is not a new concept. 
Many of us have complained loudly that we gladly pay for apps like Instagram to give us back real-time news feeds that are ordered by sequence or the ability to post something and have all the people who follow us actually see it. With Isaac's startup fan base taking both the free and premium content approach, I ask him why if this is such a good concept, why haven't apps like Instagram embraced it? Isaac speaks on it. I mean, IG is enormously successful. If you take Facebook and Instagram in 2019, they made 70 billion, I think, in Facebook did. And I think Instagram did like 14 or 15 billion in ad revenue. That's like $85 billion in ad revenue. That's a lot of money. You know what I'm saying? So to abandon that, to go to a subscription model, how do you monetize that in a way that, that you know, you satisfy your shareholders and your stock price? I, I think I think Facebook and Instagram are so far down that path. They're enormously successful. So, and also, I just feel like that's the path that they're on, right? That's the pathway that, in, in my opinion, most social networks have a lifespan a good 12 years where they are the thing, right? They're the, they're the thing that everybody rocks with. Eight eight to 12 years, it's the most popular thing on the planet, right? Like MySpace, which is like, I feel like is MySpace is dead. Like it's RIP, right? And to me, Facebook is a senior citizen by my generation. That's right. right? You know, my mom's on Facebook now. Like <laughs> I'm not there. Granny's actually on Facebook, yeah. Yeah, and so Instagram <laughs> falls in that sweet spot for me that was like, okay, I'm, even even people younger than me, but it's probably like a 20 years, probably from 25 to 45, this is ours, right? And then the kids that are younger, they have their Snapchat, right? And they have Twitch and now they have TikTok. So kids want to be on apps that their parents are not on. So they're going to find these communities. So regardless of how Facebook innovates or Snapchat innovates, there's somebody's older brother or sister that's on Snapchat that I'm like, I'm not going on there. My mom's on Snapchat. I'm on TikTok or I'm going to stay on Twitch. So no, the only thing they can do is acquire, which is cool. They want to acquire and, and continue to, to keep their audience. But other than that, someone, some people are just going to say, no, I'm going to build this community here. And that's my, my, my goal with fan base is Centennials. Like that's who's really going to get this platform because they understand so much about what it is that the platform does. They, they're transactional, right? They're a lot more generous with their money. They, understand virtual currency and in-app purchases and cash app and things like that so they understand how it works and it isn't weird to them to give somebody some money like through a through an app like you know that like cash app is weird for somebody that's probably like 50 60 years old like i'm not about to get no money on the internet what are you talking about <laughs> that's just weird for some people but for these for somebody that's 18 they're like they understand that it's nothing they, they, they're on robin hood they're buying stocks they're on game they're buying game stock and all that so they get it yes i think about i was listening to another interview that you did and you were talking about how um when these instagrams the facebook's and they will throttle your reach and yeah. you they they mess up the timeline so stuff that was posted yesterday is just now coming up and you know there's gotta you follow five thousand people but you only see 300 of them you know, right. and and so um, I've seen people all through the years, as I'm sure you have, like I would just I would pay to get rid of, you know, this sequencing of posts. I would pay to reach more of my people. And so I wonder what your thoughts are on how um, that subscription model will evolve. So right now, if you have a million followers on Instagram, you might reach if you go live on your page, you might have like, I don't know, 4000 people watch your live. Right. 
Like, do you really believe if you go live, Instagram sends out 1 million notifications? It's not happening. Because you could get on there and say, go buy this shirt, go download this song, go buy the ticket. That's too. So what they want to do is they want you to pay to reach that audience, right? Ads is what it is. It's about, oh, boosting your posts, right? That's what they want you to do. It's a successful model. And some people are like, I ain't gonna pay nothing. I'll just, I'll reach you, I'll reach it, and that's it. That's fine. What I wanna do with content creators is I want as many eyeballs on you. I want a million eyeballs on you because I, if I know 50,000 people are really gonna rock with you, right? Those are the 50,000 people that, that really rock with you. I like that. Hmm, let me change that. Um, but yeah. Those are the people that are really going to rock with you. So um, that's why for me, hold on. And I switched my light out. Yeah. My light went out. Um, that's why, you know, they, as they throttle your engagement down, uh, you know, I, I want to, I want a million eyeballs on you because I know, oh man, we're going to convert that. I know that all those people are going to convert it to loves and subscriptions and revenue. So as many people as I can see that see you, that, that, work, that, that works in our benefit. It works in your benefit and my benefit. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, along with funding programs like Project Ready, a national urban league program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on Earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. So let's talk about um, 
raising money online like startup start engine and i invested in my friends um start engine the campaigns like both streamlytics my homie angela benton angela yeah i've I invested in her angela introduced me to start angela, angela introduced me to start she's the reason that i'm on started oh nice nice yes and i invest she made she sent the intro email to start engine they were like hey check out Check out this cool startup. I think they they might be able to really work on the platform. Fantastic! And I invested in uh, the homie Don Dixon. I love Don. Um, I, I invested in Popcom twice, actually. I'm an investor in Popcom for sure. Yeah. Um. And I'm actually on the the, the wait list for fan base. I need I need I need some help there, uh, Isaac. I'm on the wait list. Uh, <laughs> um. But talk about we got you. We got you. Oh, okay, yeah, my man, my man. Um. Talk about raises on Start Engine and the the talk about how. Because this is Black Tech Green Money, so we're trying to give people how to do these things, right? So talk about how fundraising online works, and you can even touch on, like, the Jobs Act, because so many of us don't know that, that the Jobs Act is what it is, that you couldn't invest in Uber. You know, you, you right. didn't have that network. But now we can invest in startups. And yeah. So talk about, if, if you can talk about the startup engine thing, the crowdfunding, and the Jobs Act, if you would. So couple things. I mean, well, to start with the Jobs Act, just understanding that the accredited investor law, right, to me is a scam, right? It just sounds like, because it's been around since 1933. And what that means is you have to have a net worth in excess of a million dollars minus your primary residence or make over $200,000 a year for two consecutive years. When you think about that in 1933, that was definitely not, that was like 99.9% .9 of Americans didn't have that. Um, and even if you move now, it's so many people that don't. So what it does is provide opportunity over and over again for the same rich people to make themselves richer. And, and the thing that, that the, the example that I give is the rule about accredited investors was, oh, well, we do this so that we protect people from blowing their money in bad investments, right? You ever heard them say that? We don't want people to lose their money. But let me ask you this. Do you have to be an accredited lottery ticket purchaser, right? Yeah, you're right. You're <laughs> you right. You're right. <laughs> You could take $20,000 and spend it on lottery tickets and you don't have to be accredited to do that, right? You don't have to be accredited to go to Vegas and lay it all on the blackjack table, right? That's right. So um, so the accredited investor law is kind of like, mm, it's a scam. It's kind of just like a way to make people richer over and over again and to keep other people out, keep the money flowing in the same pools. So when Barack Obama and Joe Biden passed the Jobs Act in 2012, um, there really were no places to really raise money. But what the law meant was that a creditor investor law went away in that, that anyone could invest in seed stage companies, private companies with public dollars up to $1 million in a reg CF. So when that opportunity presented itself, I thought it was incredible. I thought, oh, wow, this is like the best thing ever. Like um, when I learned about it, it made me, it made me understand that there was opportunities for communities of color to invest in startups, but not have like so much risk, have limited risk, $256. That's a pair of Jordans, right? Would you rather, you could take a pair of Jordans and potentially walk away. I put $256 in there, but I made $200,000, right? I made $2 million. Like you never know, you hit a unicorn status, you made two M's yeah, on yeah. something crazy. So um, that, that really spoke to me because I'm definitely about my community and giving opportunity and access to that. So the Jobs Act, that's what the Jobs Act does. So with Start Engine um, and crowdfunding, I'll say this, you have to still know your stuff. I think, I think the one thing that I appreciate and felt validated by is even the people in the space that introduced me to um, Start Engine, um, 
Monique Idolet, Dawn Dixon, and Angela Benton, those three women are the reason that I was able to raise this money. And for those three women to even see fan base in its earlier stages and say, yeah, this is dope. Um, and, and what I built and, and my business model and my proof of concept was there to be confident enough to, to introduce me to Start Engine or comfortable enough, it, it was validation because you still have to know your stuff. I mean, if you're gonna crowdfund in this fashion, it's not like you get on Start Engine and they just say, hey, you wanna raise money for your business? Come on in and then you start a raise. There's a lot, there's a long, long detailed process of financials, filings, you know, business plan, everything, your ducks have to be in a row. Um, and so for that to really, really work. And then your network's gotta be strong. So they kicked my butt, like Start Engine kicked my butt. They made me a better founder by the way and by the way they handled me. They didn't handle me gently. And I don't think you should handle someone gently because this is a real deal. You're taking money from a lot of people. So you better be about your business. You better know what you're doing and you better have your stuff together. So I think it was a, a really a great way, like I said, for me to sharpen up my skills as a CEO and a founder. And I really appreciate that process. Being somebody who um, came from a different industry, you know, coming from the music industry and mm -hmm. um, then coming into tech, you talked about how, you know, they kind of kicked your butt and, you know, made you a better founder. Talk about, because there's a lot of people who listen to this show who want to do what you did. And they're coming from different industries and they want to be mm -hmm. in tech or they want to start a tech company, um, but they may not know or be as sophisticated in how to actually do it and raise money. What did you learn in that process? That it's harder than you think it is. Like there's a there's a there's a lot more that goes to just building a startup. It is there's the business financial side, right? There's the the technology side, especially in, in my industry, and um, and there's an enormous amount of work that these companies go through and due diligence that they do to do it. So it was something that I wasn't. I wasn't not that I wasn't prepared for, but it was very like, okay, it was very, it happened very, even though it took a while, it happened very quickly. Um, and so those are the things that really just made me, you know, um, sharpen my skills to make sure that I didn't blow this opportunity. Um, I've heard you say, switching gears a little bit, I've heard you say before, um, in Atlanta, you don't grow up with like a minority mindset. And I thought that was yeah. so fascinating. Um, how impactful do you think that's been to your success and, and those of your friends, people who grew up in Atlanta versus elsewhere? Um, very impactful because when you grow up never feeling second to someone white, right? You never feel inferior by way of confidence or finance or opportunity or potential. Think about that. Like when you're like, yo, I can be, I see the mayor, I see the police chief. I see the guy that owns the biggest construction company in town as a black man. Like I see the, the number one car dealership. You know, when you see these, you know, the number one restaurants, you see these, you see these parallels of success in your life to white people that are, that are held by black people. Then what, what, I guess, what kind of excuse do you have to not say that anything is possible? Right. So it just gives you an energy. And I think that's the secret to the, to the success of people in Atlanta because we have a huge community of people that are very, very confident, right? They believe and they, they believe, like Tyler Perry believes <laughs> and it's proof, even big old movie studio, like the biggest, you know, self-financed movie studio in the country, right? Um, the music, our records, our record labels, our, you know, all the talent, the songwriters, we're just confident, right? Martin Luther King is confident, you know what I'm saying? 
know, Maynard Jackson's confident. Um, Killer Mike is confident. So I think, you know, it's just, it's just an energy that, you know, you don't feel, you know, second to anybody. So it's like, what can we not do? If we can do, if we can do music and sports and all that, we can do tech, you know, we can do, we can do real estate. We can do construction, H.J. Russell Company, Broader Brothers with hair care products. Like it's so many parallels of success um, in this town that I think it definitely fuels and it will fuel the future innovators in tech and the, and the, and the future creators in tech in this space and in, in other businesses as well. Because the reason I asked that question and you and you touched on a couple of really good points um, was a lot of people we forget when we talk about tech that not everybody lives in San Francisco and not everybody lives in New York yes. and and even Atlanta. So for the people who live, you know, outside of these cities, you know, they may come from a place where, you know, they if they think about moving to Atlanta. Well, they maybe I'm no longer special because I am special where I'm at. And, you know, I get to take advantage of these programs that are designed to propel me but if i move to atlanta i'm one of many yeah i think i mean i mean shoot i I mean i I don't know how to handle that you know as someone that doesn't live here i think um steel sharp and steel i mean if you have opportunities in your community um take them you know what i'm saying i would never turn down an opportunity in a community to make some some ends or some some headway in my space, you know, what I'm doing. But what I can tell you about being in Atlanta is there's a community of people here that share information, that are um, eager to help other people, um, even in the same way that Don and Angela and, and Monique helped me. It's that type of vibe like, oh, let me introduce you to this person or that person or places like the gathering spot where we go and we we have community and, and we get introduced to so many different types of people. Some of the people that, that I really met in this space, um, that I met in this space, um, I met at the gathering spot um, that tech that really taught me about it. So, you know. How long can, and this is, I, I can't wait to hear your answer on this, but how, how long can Atlanta be the black cultural capital and economic capital that it is? And here's why I ask, there's, there's context to this question. You remember when Mayor Bottoms was up after Mayor Reed and how slim those margins were for her to win. And there was a white candidate and a big issue. If if you're looking at just the numbers and spread of us, the big issue is that when black people moved to Atlanta, they actually moved to Norcross or Alpharetta or Decatur. Um, But only people who live in Atlanta vote for Mayor Bottoms. And I don't think people realize that. Right. And does Atlanta change? When there's one day, perhaps a white mayor who isn't as passionate about black economics and black enterprise as our mayors have been since Maynard Jackson. 100%. Absolutely. I mean, and I think the heartbeat of this sounds crazy, but the heartbeat of this city is like the entertainment culture, right? It's really what brings people here, right? That's the draw. The draw is no, 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 I'm not trying to be even disrespectful. I hope nobody's offended, but the draw is magic city. The draw is, you know, um, QC. The draw is, you know, the, like the, the, you know, little baby. The draw is these nightclubs and the entertainment life and the and the lifestyle and the wealth, right? The draw is the street culture, right? And so from that, when that changes, if the the the, you know, um, the, the the mayor and the government, city government change hands, you can easily deny liquor licenses and close down 
the magic cities of the world and make these nightclubs close down and make the studios move outside the city and, and really kill the culture. So I feel like Atlantic will remain the cultural epicenter, uh, black cultural epicenter of America as long as we continue to vote and continue to get out and exercise our right to vote. Now, one thing that I can say, which was what Stacey Abrams did with the new Georgia project, if I'm not mistaken, is that in this, this presidential election, they registered 80,000 new voters and 40,000, 50% of those were people of color, black and between the ages of 18 and 24 in the city limits of Atlanta. So to, to understand that we have 40,000 young black voters that's, that's a lot more people to get out there and vote for a black mayor, right? And continue to do so. So um, I think that uh, as long as we remain politically um, sharp and aggressive and we elect Stacey Abrams as governor in 2022, we'll be good. Um, I wanted to have you speak on uh, something I've heard you say many times, you know, Atlanta needs its own pop culture, social media, and like they, it needs, what, what's in that New York and L.A. now, they capitalize on what Atlanta creates. Mm -hmm. And why you and I've heard you say, why is BET not in Atlanta? Why is The mm -hmm. Breakfast Club not in? Speak on that. Um, well, I mean, I think, honestly, I think we're starting to see the change in the shift, right? I think it, since I've said that, I've seen Will Packer create this show called Central Ave, right? It's like an entertainment pop culture show based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I've seen um, more radio stations try to change their, their um, the way that they create content in the space. They're a little bit more visual. View 103 is a little bit more visual. Um, they, they spend a little bit more time focusing on the online and the content more so than just the radio. So, um, I, I, mean, I mean, I feel like I've seen Butter ATL come about, like, you know, websites and, and and you know, cultural phenomenon um, pop up in this city, and even the influencers in this space really get more savvy about what they do. And I think Atlanta has probably some of the most popular black, you know, influencer creatives in in the community. So I think people have listened and said, "Yo, we need to capitalize on that." So I see the change. You know, I see what Tyler Perry is doing over there, Tyler Perry Studios, and so I, I see the evolution. I think we're right at that. We're right at that space. Like I said, the infrastructure is so more important. If BET doesn't want to move here, the first BET-like network that is that really sinks their feet into Atlanta, they'll wipe BET out. Like, it won't even be hard. It'll be easy to be like, oh, nobody watches BET anymore. They're watching this. You know, they're watching this network because you you can't, it's no secret that like the most popular TV shows that, that have black people in them are like Real Housewives of Atlanta. Love and Hip Hop Atlanta, Atlanta on FX, like these shows that are so wildly popular about our culture. So it, the writing is there, you know, the writing's on the wall. It's just who's going to come in and really sink their, their teeth into the opportunity and, and make it happen. How frustrating is it to you um, or might it be for you when you see artists and families of artists who don't own much of anything of what they're creating and they don't realize that in, you know, five, 10, 25 years, their kids won't be able to leverage those assets and their persona and take care of family business. Like, like you did with, you know, your father and managing his estate and being able to merchandise and take care of your family. Like is, what do you think when you think about they're giving it all away? 
Well, I mean, some of the decisions that are being made, I think, are business decisions to make, you know, lateral moves in different verticals. Like, I'm going to leave the music industry and now I can invest in tech or real estate or, you know, other things like that. So I understand that. It's just kind of hard to for me to understand that because I know the value of my father's catalog and I understand how much money it has made and will continue to make because he has one of those evergreen catalog where people can consistently sample him over and over again. Some of these other artists, I don't know if they'll like, you know, they'll have that where they're just people are going to come back and always sample their records and make new records and new records and more new records. Right. So, um, but I think we're also a lot more savvy now. I think ownership is on the mind of everybody. I think, um, labels like QC where they do own their masters and it is a licensing deal with Universal. I think artists like Drake that I think now he's out of his cash money dealer. People are turning that corner there. It's, it's a lot more ownership in the space than people realize. And I think um, when those stories start to come out and people really reveal what they do own and what they do have, I think it'll inspire future generations to say, you know what, I need to own my stuff too. Because I see it's it's way more popular than it used to be. I think people understand they're really reading you know, the fine print and understanding why. And and this is the reason why I feel like even fan base is so important because what can you tell an independent artist that you want to sign them when they have a fan base where they're making like a million a month? Like I'm making $12 million a year off fan base. What kind of record deal can you offer me? Like, what can you give me? I, I, if I don't own my masters, I ain't even signing with y'all. I don't need you. I don't need money. So the, the, the ability to give creatives leverage in other spaces and be disruptive is, is another reason why I think the platform is great because there's going to be some young rapper that gets on fan base and connect with their fans and they're going to be selling merch and dropping music and dropping music videos and podcasts and docu-series and they're going to have this enormous you know income stream that a record company said we want to sign you it's like all right cool I want to own my masters y'all I get 90% y'all get 10 take it or leave it because I'm, I'm on fan base over here doing this which I want to do Black Tech Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech. It's produced by Morgan DeBond and me, Will Lucas. With additional production support by Love Beach and Raven Nearborn. Special thank you to Micah Davis and Sakara Savon Young. You know, like the wine? Yes, that's his real name. Learn more about my guests and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. Go get your money. Peace and love. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Got my PrevNA 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk. Get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar 20. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine.